0: Well, next week, uh, Pastor Jeff is going to be back, and we'll be back in the, uh, the book of Luke. But for today, you've got me again, so we're going to Esther. So if you want to grab your Bible and uh, flip open to Esther chapter 7... I'm going to go ahead and uh, read chapter 7 and into the first couple verses of of chapter 8. So, follow along with me. Esther 7, verse 1. So, the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, "'What is your wish, Queen Esther?' it shall be granted to you, and what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I've found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish, and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, One of the eunuchs in attendance on the king said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose words saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, fifty cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king was abated. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews and Mordecai came before the king for Esther had told uh, what he was to for Esther had told what he was to her and the king took off his signet ring which he had taken from Haman and gave it to Mordecai and Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman the end right <laughs> woohoo well this is a uh, an interesting chapter. We've kind of been working up to this and, and, and waiting for this moment. And it's a good moment um, in a lot of ways, but it's also a, a pretty sobering moment, too. And as we consider this, this chapter, I thought of uh, James chapter 4 13 through 16 that says, Come now. Now, I read that because looking at things from from Haman's point of view, um, if you remember, Haman was pretty excited about this dinner with the queen and with the king. He had bragged about it to his friends and to his wife. Only I have been invited to dine with the queen and with the king, and he thought things were all good. Now, keep in mind, earlier that day, things hadn't gone that well for him. Remember, he went into uh, the king's presence to tell the king about his plan to kill Mordecai, to have him hanged on this gallows. And as he was going in, a servant came out and said, hey, Haman, great, you're here. Come in. And remember, the king asked him, hey, what should I do for someone I want to honor? And Haman was ready. He knew what to do. Just turns out that He wasn't the one who was going to get honored, and he had to go out and parade Mordecai around the city, proclaiming the king's favor on Mordecai, his his mortal enemy. So the day didn't start out well, and then he went back home to his friends and to his wife and told them all that had happened, and, oh, woe is me, and do you remember what his wife said? First time... She was very uh, consoling when, when Haman came to her and was, was bemoaning his circumstances. But the second time when he comes back after parading Mordecai, she says, you know, if this Mordecai is of the Jewish people, you're not going to prevail. You're not going to win. And it seems like that's kind of a, a prophetic utterance from uh, his wife, because it's in direct opposition to what she had said earlier. But but something happened. For some reason, she started to see the big picture and realized there's something else going on here. And lo and behold, at that very moment, people come to get Haman to go to dinner the second time. So that's where we are, and let's pray before we get into the details of this. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for what we can learn about you from it. Lord, I ask that you would help uh, me to speak clearly, that you would give all of us insight into who you are and the way that you work. And Lord, will you help us to Again, just see the truth of the gospel in this passage and come away with this, um, come away from this, having learned a little bit about how we ought to see even our foes in this world. Lord, we pray all of this in your name. Amen. So, Real quick, the main point for this morning is rejoice, but remain compassionate. There's a lot to rejoice about in this chapter in terms of uh, the Jews being saved, things going well for Esther and Mordecai, things going bad for the bad guy Haman. So there's, there's a lot to rejoice about, and yet... In our rejoicing, we need to remember to be compassionate. There's a simple outline that I'm going to follow, too. And uh, first, we're, we're going to talk about the reveal. And that's um, from chapter 7, verse 1 through 6. And then we're going to talk about um, Haman's end. And that is uh, 7, 7, 7 through 8.2, and then we're going to talk a little bit about our proper reaction to all of this. So first off, the reveal. Up until this point, uh, Queen Esther has been pretty quiet about who she is. And if you remember, Mordecai had told her, don't tell the king who you are. Keep it secret. And she had up until this point, and it was four or five years into her queenship, and the king still didn't put it together that she was of the Jewish people. Well, the queen had entered into the king's uh, presence, and we saw how God provided for that, because even her going into his presence was her uh, taking her life into her own hands. And she had requested, hey, will you come to a meal that I'm going to make for you. And so he did, and Haman went with him. And at that meal, if you remember, uh, the king says, hey, what do you want, Queen Esther? I'll give you anything, up, into, up to half my kingdom. And she says, well, uh, let's have dinner again tomorrow. So this is now the, the second time that they're coming to feast, and this is the, the third time, actually, that the king is going to ask Esther what she wants. Um, so if you look there in verse 2, on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, what is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. This is the third time that he's asking her, and this, is, this time she actually replies. She actually gives what she wants. So verse 3, then Queen Esther answered, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. If you notice there, when the king asked Esther what she wants, he he asked two things. He says, uh, what is your wish and what is your request? And Esther replies in order, and she says, well, my wish is that my life would be granted to me, and my request is for my people also. Now, this must have been a startling thing for King Ahasuerus to hear, because as far as he knows, things are going well. He's been invited to this great feast. They're drinking. They're having fun. Things in the kingdom seem to go... are going pretty smoothly, Uh, according to to him, things are good. He has no idea the trouble that Esther is in, and he really, he knows the trouble that the Jewish people are in, but remember, he didn't even ask Haman who the people were that Haman wanted to destroy, and so he's just really kind of oblivious to the fact that this whole people group, the Jews, are under a death sentence. Things are fine. And then he finds out, what, what? Why are you asking me for your life? Someone wants to kill you? And, and not only you, but somebody wants to, to kill your people, too? What in the world? Now, for us reading this, we go, well, duh come on, king, it's, it's pretty obvious what's going on, but remember, we see things that, that he hasn't necessarily seen yet. So Esther makes her, her wish, she makes her request, and in verse 4, she adds a, a little bit of a, an interesting um, kind of spin to this. Verse 4, for we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed to be killed, and to be annihilated. I don't think it's any coincidence that she uses those three words because does that sound familiar? That's taken exactly from the decree that Haman had written. If you remember, the people throughout the kingdom were to destroy, kill, and annihilate the Jews on a particular day. And so Esther uses that exact same language as she's making her petition to the king for her life. Now, pause for a second and think about Haman's point of view. He's had a really bad day. <sighs> you know, that Mordecai, it just somehow it seems like things work out to where Mordecai uh, gets gets blessed, gets honored, where I thought I was gonna get honored, and I'm humiliated, I'm ticked off. I go see my wife and my friends, and they say, we don't think you're gonna win. But then I got my dinner party that I've been looking forward to, that I've been bragging about, just the king and me and Esther. All right, maybe things are looking up, right? So he goes from low to a high. Hey, you know what, put that all behind me. Let's go have dinner, let's drink, let's be merry. Things will get better, right? And then he's sitting there when when the king asks again, Esther, what do you want? And she replies, I'm asking for my life and I'm asking for the life of my people. And when she uses that phrase, My people have been, it's been commanded that they're going to be destroyed and killed and annihilated. We don't know because we don't have the details, but I'm guessing at that point, Haman spits his food out. (laughs) Drops his wine. What? Because he doesn't know it either. He doesn't know that she's a Jew. He's just finding out. And can you imagine phew, the wheels start turning, his, his head just is, feels like it's going to explode because, oh my goodness, I, I have just been instrumental in making a decree against the queen and the queen's people. And I am responsible. She's the one, like, she's talking about me. I'm the one. Oh, no. (laughs) This is not good. And things go from high to low real quick for Haman. Well, Esther continues on. Not only does she use the, the language that was used in the decree, but then she says, if we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. What she's saying is, oh, King Haswiris, like, if we were just going to be slaves, like, we could have dealt with that. We could have got through that. But this decree is to, to truly wipe us out. And so you need to do something about that. There are people who kind of uh, argue back and forth about. The decree that, that Haman made, and, and some people um, think that Haman was just saying, Well, let's enslave the Jews. Um, but it seems pretty clear here that Queen Esther uh, doesn't understand this as a command merely to enslave the people of Israel because she says that right here. She says, If it were just that we were going to be enslaved, hey, We could have dealt with that, but it's not that. We're going to be eradicated, and so I'm bringing it to you, King Ahasuerus, good and great, wise, who makes such good decisions, right? (laughs) Well, maybe not, but in this case, he does. He pulls through. Verse 5, King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. Now, I'm guessing that, like I said, Haman was already trying to figure out what's going on. Uh, do Do I have any way to escape this? Is there anything that I can say? And then Esther just calls him out. Says, King, you want to know who's behind all this? It's him, Haman, the enemy. And there's no getting out of it. He's right there, looking eye to eye with the king. No excuses, nothing to hide behind. And what's his reaction? Well, I think it's appropriate. Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. Here's Haman who cares nothing about other people's lives, who wants to kill not only Mordecai, but all of his people for this, uh, for this slight against himself. Doesn't care about other people's lives, but when his life is on the line, he's terrified. Well, that's the reveal. Esther shows who she is. She identifies herself with the people of Israel. She, she lets it be known, I'm a Jew, and we are the ones who, are, who have this decree against us. We're the ones who are on the chopping block. It's me and my people, and it's because of him, Haman. So my request, king, I'd like to live. So we have the reveal, and now we have Haman's end. Verse 7. And the king rose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. It's a lot of speculation of why the king gets up and goes into his garden I tend to think it's just he's flabbergasted (laughs) you know he thought things were going well and come to find out his his queen's life is on the line and his second in command is the guy behind it and I just need a second to think (laughs) so he gets up and he goes into the garden and he's trying to decide what what am I going to do Well, while he's in the garden, it says that Haman stayed to beg for his life. Uh, Verse 8, the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. Now, you can picture this too. Haman, he's, what does he do? Probably not a good idea to chase after the king and, you know, try and explain yourself. So maybe Queen Esther would retract what she said, or maybe Queen Esther would somehow have mercy on him. So when the king goes away, he starts talking to Esther, please, and he's begging for his life. So much so that he comes close to where Esther was reclined and, and falls on the couch next to her, which is a huge no-no. There are uh, rules to this kind of thing, and you don't approach the king's woman. Uh, Some of the commentators that that I was was reading this week said that there were rules that said you didn't come within seven steps of the queen for any reason because the queen belonged to the king. And here is Haman not only going past that, but he's falling down on the couch right next to her and, and begging for his life. And when the king comes back in, That doesn't look good. The king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was, and the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? And as the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. See, that was a capital offense. To approach the queen like that, you didn't do it. If you did, that was it. You're gone. And so when the king comes back in, if you can picture this, all of these offenses that Haman is doing, they're just compounding. And now, not only is it he's the one behind uh, wanting to take Queen Esther's life and, and Queen Esther's people, but now he walks in and there he is, on the couch right next to Esther, and he says, what are you doing? are you going to assault the queen right in front of me after what just happened? And as soon as those words come off the lips of the king, the guards and the people there know exactly what to do. They come over and they cover his head because it's over. But then, one of the... uh, Eunuchs there speaks up. Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king said, hey, there's something interesting in Haman's uh, courtyard. Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose words saved the king, is standing at Haman's house 50 cubits high, and the king said, hang him on that. So Harbona brings up another offense, really, That Haman has committed. He says, Hey, there's this gallows, but the gallows are for Mordecai. And remember what just happened to Mordecai? Mordecai was the guy that the king just honored for saving his life. And Harbona is like, "Uh, By the way, king, not only did Haman want to kill your queen and kill all the Jews, and not only did he just assault your queen. But he also wanted to kill Mordecai, who saved your life. It's like one after another, things are just piling up against Haman and all the more reason for the king to dispatch him quickly. And so he does just that. He hangs him on the very gallows that were meant for Mordecai, and that is the end of Haman. He's gone verse 10 is interesting. They hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai, and then the wrath of the king abated. Well, Haman's dead. But just to show the the completeness of the fact that that this enemy is done away with, in the next two verses in chapter 8, we see that not only did Haman die, but then his whole estate was given over to the control of Esther, and Esther gave it to Mordecai. So everything that Haman had, everything that he took pride in, if you remember him boasting to his family about his riches, about all the accolades that he had received, it's all gone. He's gone, and now all that he treasured belongs to Mordecai the person that incited Haman's rage and anger more than anything else. And so we see this this person of great esteem, according to the world, just being brought down to the very bottom, killed, and all of his belongings given to his enemy. And everybody says... (laughs) A <laughs> couple interesting things here. That last verse, verse 10, the wrath of the king abated. There's an interesting picture here, and I have to thank Dave Allen a little bit. He got me thinking about this. But um, the gallows that he was hanged on, there weren't... It wasn't really a a gallows like we think of it, where somebody is hanged by a rope. Most likely it was a pole or a tree that he was impaled on and lifted up. And there's an interesting picture here where Haman is lifted up on this tree and the wrath of the king is abated. Somebody being lifted up on a tree takes away wrath. Does that make you think of anything? (laughs) Maybe that thing back there? (laughs) You know, it's an interesting picture of the gospel. It's a picture of what Christ did for us. He was lifted up on a tree to take away the wrath of God that rightfully and necessarily is upon each and every one of us. We are all born into this world as as sinners, as rebels, as enemies towards God. And we deserve to be lifted up on that tree. Not just here on earth, but eternally. Like even our physical death is not enough to appease the wrath of God. Which is why there really is a thing called hell, which is eternal punishment. And unfortunately, Haman here not only was lifted up on the tree, but according to all we know, he's still in torment and in punishment under the wrath of God. Rightfully so, because he never looked to God for the answer. And, and we, sitting here, are so blessed to know what Jesus has done for us. He's gone to the cross for us. He took the penalty of our sin and our shame on himself on the cross. And all we need to do is put our faith and our trust in him. And he transforms us. He makes us new. And, you know, if, if you're sitting here today and you have not put your faith in Christ, today's the day. Do it because it's one of two things. Either Christ takes the penalty for your sin and your shame, or you do. And if you choose not to put your faith in Christ, you're looking at an eternity of God's wrath. It is only through Christ being lifted up on the tree to satisfy the wrath of God that that we can have any hope. So put your faith in Him if you haven't. It is truly your only hope. Well, that is uh, Haman's end. Now we're on to section three, our reaction. And... You know, there there really is a sense in which when, when you read chapter 7, you get to the end and you're just kind of like, woo! <laughs> you know, you're, you're happy. It's like, this is awesome. God has done some crazy stuff. You know, Haman thought he had it all one. He was, he was happy. The Jews were going to die. But then God miraculously flipped everything on its head. And the very tree that Haman intended to kill Mordecai on, he ended up hanging on. And so we see how God worked uh, justice here, how he flipped the situation from, from being bad to, to being good. Now there's still a problem. We're still not quite done yet because the decree is still out there to kill the Jews, but we'll, we'll get to that later. But for right now, we, we read this and we go, Yes! Haman got what he deserved. And there really is a a proper way in which we should rejoice when evil is conquered and when good triumphs. And so it is, it's appropriate for us to, to rejoice in situations like this. And yet, we don't want to rejoice too much because we have to remember that Haman was... A person, like you and I. And but for the grace of God, we would be just like him. We would be under the same penalty of death. We would be under the wrath of God. And so while we rejoice, we want to remember compassion. And I think there's, there's three things that, that we can kind of take away from our scripture this morning. The first thing is, don't set your sights too low. According to the world's standards, Haman had everything. He had money, he had prestige, he had sons and daughters, he boasted about them. Well, actually, he didn't boast about his daughters, just his sons. That's a whole other story. But he, he had it all, according to the world, and yet One thing that we continually see throughout Scripture is it may seem like wicked people have it all, but they really don't. Psalm 73 is an interesting psalm, and I was listening to Alistair, Alistair Begg did a sermon on this chapter, and I was listening to that, and he brought up this point, and I thought, that's really good. In Psalm 73, the psalmist is looking around him and he's looking at the wicked people around him and it seems like they have it all. They've got money, they've got houses. Everything's going right for them. And the psalmist is tempted to be envious of the wicked because it seems like everything is going well. Psalm 73 says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are a pure in heart, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And he goes on the, the next several verses to talk about how they, they have everything that they need. They're fat and they're sleek. Um, their eyes look at evil and only want evil things, and yet they're blessed. And he just continues on and on for. Uh, quite a while talking about how good things happen to the evil, but then when he gets to verse 16, he says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, Swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one wakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. You see, the truth of it is, when the psalmist really thinks about it, he realizes that even those who have everything according to the world's standards are just a second away from complete and utter destruction. And eternity away from God, because they have not trusted in Him. They've put their trust in worldly things. They put their trust in themselves. And when that is gone, it is gone. And they have nothing. And we see that here in Haman. He had everything, and in a day, it's gone. And He's gone. So don't set your sights too low. It's tempting for us as as believers to to want the things of this world, to go after riches, to go after all these things that that really don't matter. And so I would encourage us to consider our lives and, and are we seeking after the things of this world or are we seeking after God. Is He our number one priority? Don't set your sights too low. The second thing that I think we can take from this is to rejoice. God has done amazing things to save us. And He's still doing amazing things in our lives. 1 Thessalonians 5 16 through 18 says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. You know, we, we read this chapter and we rejoice that God did something great, and yet aren't we tempted to go back to our lives and go, Boy, I wish God would do something great here. Well, guess what? He is. It may not be the death of your mortal enemy. It may be something really small in comparison, but God is at work in your life, so rejoice. 1 Thessalonians five sixteen through 18. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. You know, no matter what is going on in your life, if you belong to the Lord, you can, you can be sure that he's working. Whether things seem to be going well or whether they're tough right now. When things go well, rejoice and thank God for goodness. And when things are tough, rejoice and thank God for this circumstance where you can grow and where you can learn. And this is the continued... uh, message of the scripture is, don't lose your joy in the midst of tribulation. Go through the suffering. Look to God in that, because he uses all things in your life, good and bad. Romans 8:20 20 and 29, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. He uses everything to mold us and shape us into the image of His Son, good and bad. So rejoice, because God is at work. Third thing that I think we can take from from this is, like I said, remain compassionate. It seems like we live in a time and place where everything is cutthroat. And and there's no middle ground. It's either you're way over here or you're way over here, and both sides look at each other with contempt and hatred, and they're just wanting to, to conquer, to win. And we see that everywhere in sports. It's not enough just to have a cool slam dunk, but you got to slam dunk and then you got to stand over the guy that's on the floor and just stare him down because I'm amazing and you're nothing and I just conquered you and the crowd goes wild. But it's really kind of sad. I mean, where's the compassion? Because you know the very next play, that guy's going to dunk over him. And there's, there's no just common decency. It's just, urgh. we see it in politics. I don't even know where to go with that. It's like, <laughs> uh, my goodness, from both sides. Uh, the, the hatred and the anger. And, you know, here's something to think about. If you can't think of a person without getting angry, there's probably something wrong with you and your heart. If you can't have compassion on somebody else, even your worst enemy, there's something wrong with your heart. Because Jesus, he goes there. And he says, love your enemy. He doesn't give you an out. And he reminds us that the most important thing in this earth is that we would one love God and then two love other people. And he doesn't make categories there. He doesn't say you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is a great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor who thinks like you, dresses like you, has the same viewpoints as you on all things. No, you shall love your neighbor, the one who you align with a lot and the one who you don't. And I bring that up because it's, it's tempting for us in this <laughs> instance in Esther to just be like, ha, Haman, <laughs> you, you horrible person, you're dead, good riddance. And yet, where's the compassion? <laughs> because remember the gospel. Who are you but for the grace of God? You are Haman. I am Haman. So, Matthew 5, 44. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. We have to remember compassion. And think about this. If it was just God's goal to win and to crush His opponents, where do you think that would leave us? Well, If that was his only goal, then we're toast. (laughs) But no, God is compassionate. He's gracious, and he's merciful. Even to us who are rightly under his wrath and are rightly called his enemies, he shows grace. And he shows love and mercy. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5 says... Who's rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with him. By grace, you have been saved. That's awesome. (laughs) And I think even though we rejoice that God is doing is working justice for the Jews and for Esther and Mordecai we have to remember the grace of God in this and we have to see Haman with compassionate eyes and remember the grace of God and share that with others that's what we're called to do So there you go. Rejoice, but remain compassionate. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for the chance that we've had to to look at your word. Thank you for your grace towards us. And Lord, I I hope that, um, that you will help us to Rejoice always in the work that you're doing in our lives. Lord, help us to see it. Help us to proclaim it to others. And Lord, help us to be truly grateful because you do work for us and you have been so gracious towards us through your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we are thankful. Praise this in your name. Amen.